Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. We're doing a special Friday night edition. It's pretty unusual for us uh, to be doing a Nightlight Part 2 on a Friday night. Uh, Or is it last Tuesday or next Tuesday? Are we taking part in the Rip Van Winkle caper? I have a couple friends joining me for some updates from the world of Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. Now, I've greatly enjoyed working with Mike and Nick over the last know, about five years. Uh, you know, they've shown me more about the Twilight Zone than just the twist ending um they introduced me to a number of friends and it's really a great group of hold on hold on (laughs) wasn't supposed to start you there next Nick, yeah. Um, I'm here. I'm here, guys. Hey. Oh, I am too. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Was that your your phone, Mike? Yeah. I'm not hearing <laughs> uh, Mark. Or... Oh, I, I'm, I'm hearing, hearing Mark, Mark just fine. Mark, you still there? Did we lose Mark? Actually, actually, no, you're not, because I think the calliope knocked him out. <laughs> Yeah, my computer popped on automatic. I didn't hit nothing. Um, he fell off I, the yeah, uh, yeah, afraid so. I mean, let's see. The, Barbara, it, this is only the, the second. I guess, I guess so. It's my show. I mean, the last time he got knocked off was when we had singing bowls, and that almost crashed the entire part. But I'm sure he will call back in shortly. He, he's got to know now that he's not on anymore. <laughs> But 
I, I think that this is just sort of part of the weirdness of the times. You know, not only is humanity going crazy, but so is the Internet. So we'll just, you know, wait for him to figure out he's not here anymore and call back in. Of course, that, mm-hmm. that sometimes is, takes a while. So so you guys both are, are involved with, with uh, the Rod Serling um, Park and, and museum and all of that sort of stuff. Well, how, how would you put it, Mike? You want to you want you want to start? Yeah, why don't I? Um, yeah, Barbara, the, uh, the organization organizations are both separate. Uh, the Rochelling Foundation began obviously earlier in 1984, and uh, I was elected president in '87, and uh, worked with them until '94, and then I had a bow out because of uh, health reasons, mainly you know, ending up in a wheelchair the last 17 years and and not doing too much. Uh, and then in uh, 2008, the Bundy Museum opened on Main Street in Binghamton. And the Bundy Museum, I'm sure you're not familiar with, uh, was named after the Bundy brothers who invented the time recorder clock. So in the olden days, everybody that went to work had a punch in. You've seen the images of them putting their card in, pulling the lever down, and clocking in and out. And uh, they sold all the patents to IBM. So. Uh, even before the turn of the century, it really turned over in IBM. So the museum is in the, the main uh, Harlow Bundy's house on Main Street, and uh, they decided, um, the founder of the museum, that he wanted to open a Rod Serling archive and exhibit there. Uh, he had just moved to the area, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, wanted to, you know, pay tribute in their own way. So the Rod Serling archive began. They called me in, and uh, I actually ignored him for about a year. I didn't want to get back into this right away. But then, you know, I finally did, and and I'm glad I did. It's given me a new lease on life with all my health issues, something to do. Um, so, you know, our goals are the same. I know Nick will tell you our goals are the same, and that's to preserve the legacy of Rod Serling. And uh, so although we, we, you know, we do our own programs and things, uh, you know, they've invited me to do some programs at their last few Serling Fest, and I'm thankful for that. And on the other hand, I've had Nick four or five times at the, Rod Serling Archives speaking uh, about his book and the progression throughout the uh, four or five years he was working on the book. So uh, everybody here in the area is very familiar with Nick as well. So that just gives you a little background on the two organizations. Why don't you update or, you know, anything on your end about that, Nick? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, uh, yeah, so I'm the, I'm the current president of the, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. I uh, was just elected president, uh, I guess it's maybe maybe six months now or not even six months. And... Um, yeah, the goal of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, and we're at, you can find us online at rodserling.com, is, as Mike said, it's just to preserve and protect uh, the legacy of, of Rod Serling, who was, who was uh, more than the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone is what he, was known, what he is known for, and it's, uh, it's understandable. It's, it's, uh, it's his legacy. It's, it's, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest television series ever produced, and, and uh, that's understandable. But Rod Serling was so much more than that, not only in the writing field, but in the humanitarian field. He was, he was a philosopher. He was, he was, a, he was a humanitarian. And um, so we tried to, uh, tried to promote not only his, uh, his work, but his, uh, his philosophy and his his, uh, his legacy of of you know the things that he that he believed in and um, and you talked about you know a little bit about just how crazy the world is going right now well Rod Serling was so in tune with what was going on in the world and he would be believe me he would be in tune with what's going on now and 
and he would have uh, some very cogent things to say about what's going on right now. And I think it's kind of almost incumbent on uh, people like myself in the, in the foundation to almost to, to, to remind people what Rod, what would Rod Sterling say about what's going on right now about everything? Um, because Rod Sterling believed in speaking his mind. He, he thought it was his duty to speak his mind. He wasn't one of these people who thought, you know, that it's, uh, you know, you keep to yourself or you don't be, you know, going to be afraid of offending people. No, he believed that if you have a platform, you better talk about what's important to you. And believe me, he'd, he'd have a lot to say right now. So, so right now, well, one of the things that we wanted to talk about that Mike and I have been working on is, or, well, that Mike, it was Mike's idea about uh, renaming Recreation Park in Binghamton after Rod Sterling. And I'll, I'll let Mike get go into a little more of the detail about that because that's what Mike's going to be uh, doing this uh, this weekend on Sunday. Oh, okay. I think, uh, I, think, I think Mark is back. Mark, did you have a nice trip? Yeah, I... I you took got, a ride on the carousel, did <laughs> Yeah, and I got... I got Don't you play that uh, thing again. It, it, it got... Uh, it up and started playing. I had it queued up for when we were ready for it. Yeah, it... it <laughs> It started spinning around so fast it threw me into another uh, time zone. But I'm I'm, I'm back. It's just another, an, you know, uh, just a little branch hit hit a tree or uh, the power line in front of the house or something. Just knocked knocked me offline for a second and wait for the computer reboot. So uh, I apologize for that. That's okay. Oh, it's not your fault. Oh. So we were just starting to talk about the. Uh, the project for the petition. And uh, so what I'd like to do, if it's all right, is give the, some background information uh, of Recreation Park. Because when we first started, Nick and I, talking about this, uh, Andy Pollock, who was the president and ran the foundation for many, many years wonderfully, uh, mentioned we might not be able to rename the park. That it could be uh, in their charter, whoever donated it, uh, that it could not be rena- renamed. So I did some research online. And what we found out is, uh, I'll give you the basic history in about a one-minute uh, sum-up. Uh, Abel Bennett was the mayor of Binghamton at the time, and he owned most of the 18 acres, and four other individuals owned small parcels. So our famous industrialist from Endicott Johnson Shoes, George F. Johnson, bought up the land in 1925 from them, 18 acres, and it said there was only one stipulation, and that is the city of Binghamton must maintain it as a park in good repair at all times. There was no mention of any other stipulations that it couldn't be renamed. So uh, we're, we're glad that we found that information out, and that's why we're pursuing the name from Recreation Park to Rod Serling Recreation Park, because it literally enhances the name of Recreation Park. certainly doesn't take anything away from that name, and uh, it, it's just it'll do wonders for Binghamton, for Broome County. I mean, we already have Serling Fest drawing hundreds in from around the country and around the world. At the Serling Archive, we've had over 1,000. The very first year came from 43 states, including three groups from Hawaii, to see the exhibit. So there's a lot of interest. And I think now with Serling Fest going on, that that creates more interest because everybody takes our tour map that I created about four years ago of 17 or 18 sites of Rod Serling, uh, important houses and, and different things in his life. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, so they all go to the park. That's about number one, the mark in front of the high school and the park and the carousel are the, the top priorities. And uh, unfortunately, the carousel is not running this year, but it's, uh, it'll, it'll be a draw again in the future. 
So I asked Nick if he, I said, because of his writing abilities, his book is amazing. And because he's such a good writer, I said, you can word this better than I can. So he drafted the online petition, and uh, it reads really well, and uh, urging people to sign. I think we had 424 uh, as of an hour ago when I last looked. We literally need at least 1,000 and hopefully a few thousand based on past experiences uh, when the foundation tried to rename the Forum Theater here, um, the high school, a street. We're going to need a lot of support. Uh, so that's why we're thankful to be on tonight and try and drum up some support from your listeners. It'll be really easy for them because all they have to do is go to Facebook and uh, <coughs> uh, join, if they're not already, the Twilight Zone main site. You'll see there's about 12 Twilight Zone sites on Facebook, but the one that will come up on top has 42,000-plus members. Uh, they just turned 42,000 a couple of days ago. And so there you'll see the uh, the uh, the artwork and stuff of Nick's petition up there. And it takes 30 seconds to uh, type your email and sign. And I guess if you want to leave a comment, we have to get a code and then leave a comment. But, you know, we've got almost 120 wonderful comments, uh, com people coming out of the woodwork saying that my Rod used to babysit me, uh, three individuals so far. Two said, my mother used to babysit Rod. And, you know, we'd like to interview all these people, uh, but Nick's the only one they can use the code since he set this petition site up. And uh, hopefully he'll be able to contact some because we're not finding these people on Facebook. Um, or at least none have been on Shelley's, uh, the moderator's uh, 42,000 site. And then the other thing they want to do if they want to participate is just uh, Facebook me at, uh, on Messenger at Mike Pfeiffer, and I will answer, accept your friend's request, and I'll send you the PDF file that Nick and I created with actual sheets that will be signed with just your name and city and state. And it doesn't matter that there are states from all over the country or all over the world. Uh, we want to get as many from local to show the, the uh, local media and the, and the mayor's office. Uh, <coughs> there's a lot of interest here. So those are uh, a couple of ways you can sign online and you can uh, uh, petition, you know, send me for the PDF file for the petitions themselves. And then I'm actually having them mailed uh, you know, back to myself. And when we get at least you know, 500 online, which hopefully will be within a week, then I'm going to approach the uh, newspaper here, try and get an article going, and uh, try and get all three TV stations to give us some coverage and, and see what the response is on the local level. That will determine if we really have a shot at this. But we're thankful for any of your listeners that will, uh, you know, follow up. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a fan of uh, – you know, most of them are fans of Twilight Zone. They're not like Nick and I that are fans of Rod Serling and what he stood for and what he still stands for. Um, so – we're not getting as many numbers as I thought we would. However, uh, you know, and even if walking distance isn't your favorite episode, do this for Rod. Do it to honor him, uh, to keep his name alive. I don't think his name's ever going away. I think Nick will agree that that 100 years from now or 1,000 years, there's still going to be Rod Serling, you know, talking to us through his, his television shows, his works. Um, it's amazing. So you have any more info on, on that part of it? Uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Mike. Thanks. I, you know, so a couple of things. I just wanted to firstly give also the actual website. It's if you want to sign the petition, you can also just go directly to the website. Um, the website is ipetitions. The you know the letter i ipetitions.com, and if you go to ipetitions.com and you just search Rod Serling, I'm sure it will come up. Um, the actual whole uh, website is a little bit too long to, for anybody to remember. So, but if you go to ipetitions.com and just search Rod Serling, I'm sure you'll find it. 
And the other thing I just want to mention, you just uh, mentioned uh, walking distance, and I'm sure that some listeners don't really know the uh, the connection. And so a little bit more about Recreation Park. You know, Recreation Park is located just a few blocks away from Rod Ser- where Rod Serling grew up on uh, on Bennett Avenue, 67 Bennett Avenue. And Recreation Park was the park that he played in. I mean, it was it was it was the park that he would walk to or bike to um, every day in the summer. And it was it was it was this, it was his happy place. You know, this was you know this is where a kid you know enjoyed his summer. And and Rod Serling, when he wrote the episode Walking Distance for, for the Twilight Zone, it's about a, a man who goes back in time to his childhood and who just wants to go back and re-experience that feeling of being able to be, to be a kid in summer and in the park, just to go to the park and ride the carousel and eat cotton candy and listen to music from the bandstand and just kind of um, just, just de-stress and, and go back to that innocent time. And, and that was inspired by Recreation Park and, and, and thankfully, Recreation Park does acknowledge that there is a marker in the bandstand that, that says Rod Serling, creator of Twilight Zone, walking distance, um, and that's going to be there forever. And the carousel itself, which is the same carousel that Rod Serling rode in 1927 you know, or 1932, um, is still there, And but now it has artwork inspired by the Twilight Zone going all the way around the carousel uh, by a, an artist named Cortland Hull uh, did the artwork. I, I'm looking at some of it right now. Actually, I have it as my screen, uh, my background on my on my computer. But um, so that's the connection to Recreation Park, and it seems just so natural and so so um, you know, so, so obvious to rename that park Rod Serling Recreation Park. It was um, it's you know that he's the one who immortalized it in that Twilight Zone episode. He's Binghamton's most famous resident, and he really you know. It would be really nice to name this particular uh, place after after him. Well, uh, Nick, you just said that Rod was Binghamton's, uh, you know, biggest celebrity. Uh, you know, he really should be seen as one of. America's top authors. I, I agree. I, I, of course. I yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think it's appropriate that you know, there's um, his name attached to the park, which you know did have um, oh, it, uh, it inspired one of the more famous Twilight Zone episodes. It's a great uh, time travel episode. Like, maybe even you know, seemed to inspire my little uh, trip at the start of the show. But it <laughs> it, it is uh, uh, appropriate to you know, have that, that honor for Rod. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is, and and it's, and it's obvious. I think it's such a, it's such a no brainer that you know it's it's hard to understand why it hasn't been done before. <laughs> so so we're hoping, as Mike said, to get enough signatures to to at least impress the powers that be. You know that there is a a, a, a desire for this, that people want this, and they they acknowledge that yeah, this is appropriate. And as Mike said, you know this this is uh, the, the name of the park is Recreation Park, and I don't think Rod Serling himself would ever want to change that name. I, I think that is what it is. I think Rod Serling would never want to uh you know change history it's it's that that's what he would want but to name it rod serling recreation park just enhances that that 
that title. It's it'll still be Recreation Park. It'll just be Rod Serling Recreation Park, and just to have his name on it too, just to acknowledge the the love that he had for it, and the love that he had for his hometown. I mean, it, you know, it's been uh, it, it's 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 a famous thing about Rod Serling how much he loved Binghamton. Um, you know, he loved his childhood. He loved his childhood in Binghamton, and he was never uh, shy about saying that. He even after he and his family moved to Hollywood, and he was you know moved to California, and he was a, a big time star. Uh, when he came back every summer, and the family stayed on the lake, uh, you know, up further north than, than Binghamton, he would take the drive down to Binghamton and just to just to drive through his old hometown and just to see the house again and just to see Recreation Park again and and to see the sights because he was a nostalgic kind of guy as anybody who's watched his work knows and so he would do that every year and. Um, you know, so he never gave up that route, you know, the roots. He never lost the roots to, to Binghamton. That was that was always his hometown, even though he was born in Syracuse. Uh, but he moved to Binghamton when he was a baby, and and so Binghamton was was his hometown. And he never never uh, he never left in, in certain certain respects. Yeah, not uh, to add to that when when he was you know summers here at Ithaca, so I can remember Ann's book saying that. You know, they offered to come with him, and most of the time he would always say, "No, I want to go alone and visit." You know, my youth visit all the homes and the uh, the four or five stores, the mom and pop stores. Uh, they brought the Serling family here. Without that, there wouldn't have been any Rod Serling in Binghamton. And uh, and then even equally as important through the years, because I've been researching Rod for over 50 years uh, since I met him twice in '71 here in college, and. Uh, we have numerous photos, and I mean 40 or 50 of him making appearances here uh, in Binghamton through the years, and uh, it wasn't just his summer trips. Whenever he was invited to do anything, there's a photo of him coming back for a um, uh, Pearl Harbor reunion, another one for the uh, his Jewish synagogue here, the Ladies' Auxiliary. He always paid his own expense. Even when he was offered money to come, he paid his own way. And uh, the city of Binghamton, we even have a newspaper article, I don't know if Nick has seen this one yet, uh, that when they were tearing down, getting ready to tear down our, our famous Arlington Hotel, which is important in Rod's life and career, the city asked him for $50,000 to help create a fund and get that started. And Rod, big article, you know, said he would love nothing more, but he didn't have that kind of money. I mean, he didn't get much money from the uh, sale of Twilight Zones and the rights to CBS. And uh, so, you know, the city didn't mind to call on him for things, but it's been like pulling teeth. Do you realize, I'm sure Nick does, but it's been 72 years since Rod Serling last lived here in Binghamton. And that was in 48 when there's an apprentice at Antioch College. They sent him here for a couple of months to, to work at one of our radio stations. Uh, interestingly enough, we have paperwork uh, that has Rod talking about it himself, Saying, excuse me, that he had worked at this radio station earlier in his career, and uh, he was only there about two months, and they fired him. The manager fired Rod Serling, saying that he had a terrible speaking voice. Well, how ironic, because his is probably the most recognizable speaking voice in the world. Twilight Zone today, there's not one minute anywhere in the world that Twilight Zone is not being screened on television. Uh, it's second only to I Love Lucy, and then the Twilight Zone, and then thirds in syndication is the Honeymooners. So, and and now with YouTube and the advent of all these pay channels and stuff, they're just they're available, you know, 24/7 uh, in the DVD set. So, it's been like pulling teeth, like I said. 
Helen Foley and Rod's teacher, and uh, he immortalized her in an episode, Nightmares of Child. Um, she uh, she had the dedication ceremonies of the New York State Historic Marker in front of Rod Serling's high school, Binghamton Central High School, and uh, the dedication was in June of 1986. And that's how I first got involved. I saw it in the paper, and I went and, and met her, and I was there. And she had a very funny sound bite on one of our three stations. And up on my YouTube channel, uh, I have about 21 of these rare video clips up there. And this one, she's pointing right into the camera, a real close-up. And she was very emphatic, and she said, Rod Serling's words will never be stilled, not ever, never. And she's pointing right into the camera. And uh, a lot of people laugh at it, but I mean, that, she, that was her passion. And then she went on to say, and I think everything in Binghamton should be named after Rod Serling. <laughs> so that was carried a little too far, but uh, it's been 72 years and there's nothing. And uh, Nick mentioned the uh, the circular bronze in the floor of the, the bandstand, and I'm the one who had that made, and, and uh, we laid that, and I dedicated that on Christmas Day on Rod's birthday in 1988. So <laughs> we're glad it's there. It's tarnished horribly. It needs cleaning. I just called the bronze maker. They told us how to clean it, but in my wheelchair, I can't get down and do it. But uh, hopefully Saturday or Sunday, I'll get it cleaned before our program, though, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So I'm glad Nick mentioned you. Now, the matter of fact, there's a, a famous movie uh, about three, four years ago, Rewrite, and uh, they didn't show our carousel, but they did show the bronze marker in the bandstand for just a couple of seconds. And the whole thing was a flavor of Binghamton, uh, our speedies and, uh, you know, link aviation and uh, everything here. And uh, so it's cute. In the segment that uh, uh, the two stars did um, with the carousel, it's hysterical because he was afraid of the carousel. So if you haven't seen the movie, check it out. It's a lot of fun. And uh, quite a bit of it was filmed right here in Binghamton. And I did want to just add one one thing. Uh, you know, there is there is at the you know Binghamton High School. There's the the Rod Serling School of Fine Arts. Um, that is that is named after Rod Serling there. And, and actually, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation gives a scholarship to a graduate of the Rod of the Rod Serling School of Fine Arts each year. And we actually just chose this year's uh, recipient of that award. Um, and I'll mentioned his name. His name is Trevor Terry. Um, I haven't even mentioned it to him yet. So if he happens to be listening, this will be his news that he won the, uh, this year's Wrestling Memorial Foundation scholarship. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we do that. And that's one of the things we do in Rod Serling's name is, 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 is give out that scholarship each year. And, uh, so that is, and they have a, they have a, a plaque for, uh, in honor of Rod Serling at the school and, and also of Helen Foley right outside the theater at the school. Um, it's actually the Helen Foley theater. Um, so she's acknowledged there as well. And, and as Mike said, there's the historical marker outside the outside the high school. Um, but something like this, uh, you know, naming the park is 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 a little bit different. You know, it's 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 like uh, Mike mentioned, and renaming the the Forum Theater was something that uh, in Binghamton was something that was thought of or, or approached, and um, that would have been nice. But but this is even more appropriate, uh, the park, for all the reasons that you know that we've already talked about. Yeah, and go ahead, Nick. Mark. Mark. Oh, I, I just want to say in Nick's book, Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, on page 205, he specifically uh, 
states uh, walking distance. Um, in a 1963 interview, Serling spoke of the inspiration for walking distance, and Nick provides this quote, I'm the kind of guy who is now in that aging late 30, early 40 bracket in which suddenly there's a tremendous bittersweet, poignant feeling about wanting to go back to another time. In my case, it would be pre-war, early teens time, which was particularly happy for me, and it goes on. But it, and it all ties in with what you two have been saying about um, you know, the recreation park and what it meant to Rod personally. Yeah, that's exactly and, and Nick, it. And, and you know, and, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Uh, 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 where, uh, where was that quote from? That is from a, an interview that Rod did in Australia, actually, in Australian radio. Um, and you can find it online. Oh. If, you, if you probably, if you just Google Rod Serling Australian radio, you'll probably find it pretty quickly. Um, and it just, uh, it's one of those interviews that just kind of popped up, not too not too long before I wrote the book. Um, so, you know, new interviews and, you know, uh, videos and, and audio of Rod Sterling are kind of popping up all the time. And that, that was one that, uh, you know, just, just came to light maybe five years or so ago. Um, yeah, not even probably, but um, yeah. So he was talking about it um, when the Twilight Zone was being syndicated in Australia and he was talking about, uh, about walking distance. Okay. And uh, my, Mike, you let me, introduce that uh, you know a little passage um, you were starting to say something I didn't mean to cut you off uh, no yeah, you're the, you guys are the hosts and I forgot what I was going to say anyway so yeah we pick up from here okay well I'm a lot of men you, Nick. okay well, yeah you know, one of the, Mike, one of the you know really nice things that you do uh, have to uh, for visitors of the Bunny Museum to pick up uh, when they visit is the um, map of downtown Binghamton and how to uh, get to. Uh, you know the family's business, the home, uh, you know boyhood home. Uh, you know there's some uh, uh, some of these places are uh, now vacant lots, but you, you know we know where, you know, like the bus station that was uh, used in after hours was located. Uh, map of uh, like what about eighteen seventeen? I think there's seventeen uh, on there right now. There's actually twenty five that I've been working on, expanding it into a booklet style with a little story of each. I like to use the the uh, uh, Paul Harvey and his famous radio show, and now the rest of the story. Uh, I always mm-hmm. do that in my programs, and I love to give some background information that nobody else seems to have. <coughs> excuse, you know, I have this running cough, so excuse me. Uh, Interesting about the, the tour map came about uh, quite by accident. I went to the Binghamton Library to look through the Historic Society city directories, and I actually 
you know, started in 24, but I didn't realize, I didn't think about it right away, that, you know, from the, the census those years and uh, when they did the city directories door to door, uh, they did not list anybody under the age of 18 that was in the household. So Rob's never, name never appeared in any of the directories. And uh, even more, I forgot that, that you have to go to the year after to get the year behind. So if you wanted 1924, you had to look at the 1925 directory that would cover 1924. So what mm-hmm. I found out was really interesting because most of the, the articles that I had read through the years said that Rod was a little over two when he moved here. But no, he was just barely over one. And uh, the, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the grocery store chain, and, uh, and, and Nick you know, can verify because he's done so much research too, uh, this information that the, uh, the Cooper family grocery stores, meat market, was his uh, – grandparents, and they wanted to open a store here in Binghamton. They actually started in Auburn, New York, not far from Syracuse, and <laughs> had some stores in Syracuse, and they wanted to expand to Cortland and to Binghamton. So they sent the parents, and of course Rod's older brother, Robert, uh, because of the age difference, he was here, and they sent him here years earlier to case out the joints and try and find a sufficient location that would really find a, a good Jewish population area. Uh, because they were a kosher meat market to start. And uh, so I started going back years and years, and I actually went back to 1918, and I printed out all the city directory pages with this information. And uh, mom and dad, they they first came to Binghamton and stayed in 1918 at the Arlington Hotel. And they lived there for six months and six months in Cortland, casing out the area. And then again in 1919 they came, and lived at another hotel. I think it might have been the Bennett. And then they came in like 1920, and they lived in an apartment not far from the Bundy on the west side. And then they came the next year again and had another apartment they lived in. So it took four, five, six years of them coming here three to six months a year to really settle in on a location. So right after uh, Rod was born, his father Sam left the family in Syracuse and came here and got an apartment just a block away from the high school. And then, of course, he just had made one left turn and right over the bridge, and they opened up the first meat market here on Court Street, which is our main street downtown Binghamton. And now there's a restaurant opened up there three years ago called The Colonial that's very popular on that location. And uh, his father, Sam, must have been brilliant because within a few months, the name was changed to Serling Sanitary Meat Market. And... Uh, I'm not sure why the sanitary came in there or just how that came about. That very quickly became okay. the Sterling market, not the Cooper family market. And then going through the rest of the years, right up through 1945, um, there were five locations of their store. Um, most people list two, but there's actually five. And, again, I have them all from the directories. And uh, it changed names at one point to Darling's Meat Market uh, after his father's health started getting really bad. They even brought in a cousin, a uh, cousin from Syracuse, to help uh, right after Rod had joined the service. They couldn't make it on their own. They brought a cousin down, and he lived there, and he was in the directory. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, if it wasn't for the Cooper family and the, the meat market chain, Rod would have, you know, lived in Syracuse and, you know, may never have ended up writing at all. So we're so thankful. So it's just a little history of how they came here. Um, 
So the tour, the, our tour map, because of that information I dug up, I decided to start listing all of these places. And we found the house that we didn't know Rod lived in. There was a house before Bennett Avenue. And I think it was 16 Laurel Avenue. I know it's Laurel Avenue, right on the river. And uh, nothing fancy of a house, not near as nice as the one they bought a year later uh, that we all know on Bennett Avenue. But it's funny, right after I found that and took pictures and posted that, Ann Serling did a uh, live show and talk and uh, some video footage and stuff with our PBS station, WSKG. And I went, and that's where I got first meet Ann. And as I went in, I was handed, somebody was standing there passing out flyers, and it was a full-page tower sheet of Rod Serling's house, first house for sale, $125,000. Well, I was livid. I said, somebody picked up on my information, came to the Bundy, took a map, printed it, and was passing out my tour map, the house, and trying to capitalize on it. So by the time I informed some of the people at SKG, the guy was gone. He must have given out all the flyers. But the house ended up selling for around 40000 They had no takers at that extreme because it was only uh, booked at about 35000 And I'm told the three college students from Sumi actually got together and bought the house themselves and are living there now. So you'll find a lot of information like that. Um, <laughs> then because of the first program I did right after we made the map, so I think it would be 15, uh, called Rod Serling Bennington. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I think Nick was there because I had him speak, and, and uh, I actually got his picture in the paper. They came to, they stayed the whole two and a half hours interviewing everybody who was there, all these older ladies in the late 80s and 90s that dated Rod and went to proms, and they came to get my picture, and I said, I've had my picture in enough times. I says, right here's our guest. Get his picture, put it in, promote the book, and uh, they did, and uh, it was great. I'm glad we had a part in being able to kick off next career. But the next day, I got a call from the museum staff saying that somebody in the area uh, had some important information for us, and he wanted me to come and interview him. And I believe he was 86 or 7 at the time. And I made a 45-minute recording. I think it's John, but the last name is Levine. <coughs> Mr. Levine's older brother was Rod's ultimate best friend all through school and all, th all through life. A matter of fact, he uh, named the doctor, Dr. Levine, in the uh, uh, night gallery, Messiah on Mott Street, the Christmas episode. And uh, uh, so at any rate, we found out some information that Nick didn't know and I didn't, and I shared. I gave him a copy of that audio. And it told on there how Rod ended up back in Binghamton because when he was discharged, he didn't let anybody know, according to the interview, that he was coming back, uh, being released, and uh, Jack Levine and his mom were in New York City on a bus, spotted Rod on the corner of whatever street they were on, in uniform with his duffel bag. They stopped, they got off the bus, and they ran up to him and said, Rod, what are you doing here? Why didn't you let somebody know? He said, I didn't know where I was going or what I'm going to do. And she said, uh, the mother said, you're coming home with us. And so after Dr. Jack had his uh, surgical procedure on his leg, they, uh, they, they came home. They brought Rod Serling here. So there's another house nobody knew about, and it's on Leroy Street. And uh, it's a really unique, funny-looking house, uh, sort of like right out of the Twilight Zone. Uh, you will see some pictures, I'm, I'm sure, on the website by now. And uh, he, he stayed there for two months before he went back up to live with his mom and aunt up in uh, Schenectady. And Nick is the one that told me that that's where they went. he went from here, was up there, and then he went to 
on the GI Bill to Antioch. So uh, do you have any more enlightenment about that, Nick, about uh, after the war? Uh, well, I, I think I had it right that he went to, to uh, Schenectady, wasn't it? Well, his mother, his mom had moved to Schenectady with her, with her sister, with uh, Rod's aunt, and I, I believe it was her sister, or it might have, yeah, I believe it's a sister. Um, so yeah, the one thing I guess that you know people would need to know is that Rod's father died while he was in the military, and Rod was not able to come back for the funeral, and this was another thing that just, you know, really uh, aided him for the rest of his life that he was not able to be there for his father's funeral, and uh, when he came back from the war. His mother had moved from Binghamton to Schenectady um, with the, with the with his aunt, and he was he was really uh, aimless. He came back and his roots were gone from Binghamton. They his mother wasn't there. His father was gone. Uh, you know, so he really didn't know what he what he what he was going to do or where he was going to go. So I, I I certainly could picture that scene of of a friend saying, "Hey, come stay with us," and he said, "Yeah, why the heck not? I'll I'll, I'll stay with you for a few months." Because he really was that he the way he put it was he was at loose ends. He was he was bitter about the war. He was he was at loose ends and he didn't know what he was going to do and and um so i so he first certainly may have stayed with them for a few months and i honestly don't know if he did go to schenectady to stay with his mom or if he did just go directly to antioch he probably did go to stay with his mom in schenectady for a little while actually i'm almost positive yeah he he almost certainly did um before he went to went to antioch and then that's in yellow springs ohio and uh, that's where he met his wife carol and and the rest is the rest is history yeah, I, I remember that when you were doing your book, you sent me uh, uh, some sort of a document that he had gone there, and it said that he went on the GI Bill from Schenectady to Antioch. So, I'm, I'm right, sure. right, yes, and, and actually, yes, and actually, I, I do remember now that when he when he applied to Antioch, he actually gave the Schenectady address. So, so yes, that was he certainly was living there at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, I just wanted to say you know, that map that we're talking about the. Uh, people can get at the Bundy Museum uh, really does help people to visualize you know, uh, you know, Rod's childhood. Um, and like I said, you know, there's uh, you know the Boscoff or what's now the Boscoff uh, department store at the end of. The um, bridge, the bridge, mm-hmm. you know, Main Street Bridge. It, it, it's just it, it, it is very helpful in you know a student, fan, uh, aspiring author to walk in his footsteps, and you know they have those kind of uh, pamphlets of you know. Uh, Dickens's London. They take uh, people on tours, but it, you know, it, it you know, it just really helps you to connect with uh, the author, see the th- things that he saw, what you know, yeah, what, what he would later. Yeah. It makes it easier to see everything because our director, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, our director of operation, Jan uh, Rudlow, I gave her the information, and then she laid out the map in a circular fashion. So, you know, as you come out of the archive parking lot, you turn left on Main Street, you turn left at three blocks and you're at Recreation Park. Then from there you go to the house on Bennett Avenue. Then from there we send you over to the house on uh, the first house because it's closer. And then we ended up, you know, you go by the father's, Sam Serling's first apartment. You end up at Rob's last apartment before the war. 
uh, when they sold the house in 1940 and moved into an apartment on the second floor uh, on Chapin Street. So it, it does a circular type of a map uh, crossing the bridge. So you have Bosch House, as you mentioned, which was the former Fowler, Dick, and Walker when, when Rod grew up there. And uh, the, one of the meat markets was right next door where our parking lot is. And, uh, you know, so when he was delivering meats, you know, and it rained, he'd be, he'd be fooding in. I've actually read where he worked in the toy department there when he was 12 years old for a while um, just to make some extra money. And then you go on up to Resnick's on the corner, which was in the pilot. Uh, the first episode where everybody, you see the Resnick's trucks, the mannequins. And then you turn left and you're at the, uh, the bus station and then another block, you're at the Arlington. So it's a nice loop around all of the areas. It covers uh, his synagogue. It covers the Unitarian Church right near the synagogue where he attended. Uh, every time he came back summers and stuff and was still here, he attended the Unitarian Church there. Uh, covers the old uh, Jewish Community Center on Front Street right on the river where he took his Sunday school classes. And uh, interesting, one of our one of the foundation's original board members, Sybil Goldenberg, who just passed away this past, within the last year, she uh, was in Sunday school classes with Rod when he was five years old. And uh, they went, <laughs> were lifelong friends. And she had a photo, and I don't know where it ended up after she passed, uh, of his Sunday school class of about seven or eight of the students when he was five years old. And uh, you can still see it if you go to my YouTube channel and look at the Rod Serling uh, videos I put up there because she held it up and they did a close-up of it. I think that was on the David Rossi uh, interview show. And uh, so at least we have an image of it that way, but... Uh, I think we got it between Nick and I. We got to start checking into where that photo ended up, see if we can't get a hold of it and get a copy because it was a wonderful piece. So, so that's how the tour map became available. And uh, so, like I said, there's 17 on there, but there's about 25 sites right now. And uh, you know, who who knows what else will end up on them? It's well done. Yeah, it, it's a nice aid for people. We had it on our website for. Uh, several years, and then uh, our website crashed, and, and somebody bootlegged it from Gucci. Uh, it was a rip-off Gucci company selling fake pocketbooks and stuff ended up with our Rod Selling archive site, and uh, we were never able to get it back. So it's been two years in the process of using the Wayback Machine and trying to, to get some of that material and get it back up there. But uh, as we get the archive website back up, we will put the map back up there. Then they can download it, too. <laughs> Mike, you just mentioned your uh, YouTube site, and you've been doing uh, a, a number of uh, live uh, stream Facebook uh, talks, and... Yeah, yeah Nick got me uh, really? on that. he did a great two-hour one uh, a few months ago that you know 800 and some people were online watching it, and I was one of them. And uh, so Shelly challenged me, since I can't do my programs at the museum, to uh, you know to do something. So the first one was 38 minutes, and it it was sort of fun, uh, but it was a lot of work for me to you know get my thoughts and get things in order. And then uh, <coughs> the second one I did on. Um, the uh, the uh, man in the funny suit, one of my favorite thrilling pieces of all time, that he didn't write, but he was in it as himself uh, on the you know the background story of the Requiem for a Heavyweight Live 
broadcast for Playhouse 90. And then that got lost from my site and everywhere. And then the third one I did on Earl Holloman for about 40 minutes got lost. It hit 557 views and uh, disappeared. And so I ended up redoing it about a week later. Everybody kept saying, where is it? I want to watch it again. Or I heard about it. So I uh, redid it. And this time it was a little over an hour because we talked about the carousel too. And in it, I played the uh, eight-minute uh, Earl Holland tape that he made for me in June of 1987. So, uh, you know, long time ago. And that was uh, what I played at the second annual Rod Serling Film Festival that we ran that year. And uh, it's been very well received, and I'm flabbergasted because it's it's been like 10 days ago, and I looked an hour ago, and it's up to 1,152 views. I, I have never, I mean, you know, double and triple of all the other programs. So Mr. Holloman was still very, very popular in that episode. is so popular being the first, uh, you know, official Twilight Zone episode. Uh, do you want to talk some about where's everybody next? Uh, well, actually, yeah, you know what? I'll, just before we uh, run out of time, I did want to mention, you know, I haven't actually mentioned it yet, but, but uh, you know, this Sunday, June 28th, is, is the 45th anniversary of, of Rod Serling's death um, in June, June 28th, 1975. Uh, he was 50 years old, died way too young. And uh, so this Sunday, uh, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, I'm actually going to be doing a, a live, just a, a short presentation just to acknowledge the date and say a few words in tribute uh, to Rod Serling. That's going to be on the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation Facebook page. So go to Facebook, look up Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, you'll find us. And I'll be doing that at 10 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, and then Mike has uh, an event going on in the afternoon at Recreation Park, also to commemorate the day and to talk about and to uh, disseminate this uh, petition for renaming the park. Um, so you can you can mention that, Mike. Yeah, I had uh, in, invited Nick to join me on that, and uh, you know because of the pandemic and everything, it's it's tough traveling and things right now. So I certainly understand his not being able to join me. I know his heart was in it because he said, "I really want to be there." And uh, what we're going to do at 2.30, weather permitting, I may have to change the time tomorrow because there's a chance of some light storms throughout the day, but it looks like major blocks are going to be free. So I'm aiming for 2.30. I want to speak right from the bandstand where the marker is um, in, in honor of, Rec- of Rod Serling. It's been 45 years, as Nick mentioned, and I can't remember one of the 45 years where our newspaper or our radio stations or TV stations mentioned, you know, by the way, this is, the such and such anniversary of the death of Rod Serling, Binghamton's first famous son. And it, it's just about time that something is done along those lines, too. So we don't want a large crowd. I did not do a press release, uh, just word of mouth to some of our regulars that come to my programs. And uh, we've got 15 or 20 that are going to be there. Uh, and that's why I came up with this Calliope tape, uh, which just came in today. I paid $15 overnight to get the tape in, and I'll explain that in a minute. But this is the actual carousel music that Rod listened to uh, from our, uh, our Recreation Park carousel. So I figured the park might have 50 or 100 people wandering around because I've been driving there a few times in the last week and finding 40, 50 people. And hopefully Sunday afternoon we'll have more. And if I play that music with the uh, microphone and stuff and they know the carousel slows, they're all going to come to the bandstand to see what's going on. <laughs> so it's my way of trying to lure them in and uh, and then uh, you know, talk about the uh, petition as well and things. So we uh, <coughs> are looking forward to you know, maybe 20, 30 people, and I'm hoping to have our three TV stations there to film the actual short talk. 
Uh, I'm going to do it live on Facebook, and we're going to also videotape it with a widescreen Dolby high-def stereo uh, camcorder and get that up on my YouTube site, and then uh, we can steer people how to find that. And by the way, if you want to look at any of these videos, just go to YouTube and type in my name, Mike, M-I-K-E, Piper, P-I-P-H-E-R, and it will bring in 20-some Rod Serling uh, videos, of a lot of it local stuff from the years, interviews and things that nobody has seen other than a few snippets here and there at my programs at the museum. So, you know, check some of that out as well. Uh, uh, Nick, I think they said we could do the full two hours, but that's up to you if you want to stay on. Uh, am I right, Mark? Yeah, I, I, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I have a lot of uh, questions we could sure. get, get into as well. I'm yeah. not going anywhere, so, so yeah, absolutely, I'm here. Okay. okay. All right, okay. so let's <laughs> let me talk briefly about the the carousel. Um, Harvey Rail had a publishing company here in Vestal, and he was the world's largest collection um, of calliopes, all original calliopes, uh, player pianos, music boxes, uh, anything music related, and uh, he had a big museum built on his house here in Vestal, about three miles from the museum. And uh, it was amazing. Well, before he passed away, he recorded this to uh, cassette. And then his wife, after he died, did it to CD. The music is all public domain stuff from the teens and 20s of everything, you know, from uh, what I was going to play for you that started on its own. was Bill Bailey, won't you please come home? And there's, you know, Ma, he's making eyes at me. And, and just that type of music from that era. And uh, <laughs> although they didn't take the equipment there to, to do it, because nowadays I'm pretty sure they're using a computer chip or a, a CDs and things for the music. They're not playing the originals that was there on the world or then. But this was from the same model, the same everything from 1925 in the Real Museum. It was the same music they said that played when Rod grew up there. So it's... Uh, it's fascinating, and it's very rare. There was only one on eBay used, and I found one new one, and then I paid fourteen ninety-five uh, for two-day delivery to get it here in time to be able to use it someday and hopefully draw some people to the bandstand. So if you like calliope music in general, uh, it's a lot of fun. I was reminded when I listened to it today, I had forgotten because I, I rode the carousel. I think I rode it with Nick when he was here. Didn't you hoist, hoist me up there, Nick? I think it was you. <laughs> uh, well, I was I was with you, but I I, I didn't do any hoisting. <laughs> somebody else may have, nope. may have hoisted you up I, there. I did have to be hoisted up there at the pole and my left hand and somebody on my right hand. And I had to sit. <laughs> I certainly can't sit on a horse <laughs> with my weight and my health problem. But I wrote, and I forgot that when the uh, new song would start, they always started with like 15-second intro and then stop with the boom and then started the song all the way through. So. I found that interesting because I forgot that from my youth of riding the carousel all the time. That seems to be the custom. So that's a little <laughs> history of the carousel music, and it's you know it's fun to just sit here and listen. I, I just reminisced for 20 songs this afternoon uh, and said, this is the music that Rod Serling heard as a child when he played the you know and rode the carousel, and and not just riding it, but even as he was older, playing tennis there uh, and uh, just doing anything. Or baseball. Uh, the, the music just flowed. Uh, so I'm sure he heard it a lot. Okay, um, Mike, did you want to play it? 
No, because <laughs> I'm sort of afraid to. I think maybe that knocked you off the air. I don't know what happened. No, uh, I, was, uh, uh, that was... I was sitting here doing nothing, and my, my cat's laying on the back of the computer. All of a sudden, it just started blasting, and I, <laughs> I had to shut it down as quickly as I could. So yeah, they already heard a sample of about 15, 20 seconds. So I don't think we need to do that again because it's pretty loud. Okay. But thanks well, for the I, opportunity. Yeah. I was off the air too, so I you know what uh, didn't realize that uh, you know mysteriously happened to you at the same time. But it, 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 Nick, since uh, you know Mike was talking about the interview he did with uh, Earl Holloman, uh, you know you have. In your biography, that Earl and Rod worked together on Playhouse uh, 90, and you know just that you know, the the tape uh, you know Mike played and it sh- shows you know the friendship uh, lasted over the years. They thought very highly of uh, Rod, but yeah, it's it when people read your, it's really interesting where you draw our attention to uh, like some of these pre-Twilight Zone shows, like Playhouse ninety, and you know. That's where Rod and Earl met, and you know, John Frankenheimer is, uh, you know, d- directing the uh, Dark Side of Earth episode. Uh, you know, they go on, uh, or uh, Rod goes on to write the Seven Days in May, and what uh, John Frankenheimer is directing that, and he's involved in uh, directing Manchurian Candidate. It's just really interesting how all these people came out of like the same uh, show, and their their paths would cross. Uh, you know, many more yeah, times yeah. down the road. Yeah. Yeah, you find that with actors, with directors, uh, it's yeah, absolutely. And and Rod and John Frankenheimer, um, I say this in the book that I think probably second to Rod Serling and Buck Houghton, who was the producer of The Twilight Zone for the first three seasons. Um, besides Buck Houghton, John Frankenheimer is the person who Rod Serling had, I think, the best creative relationship with. Um, Sir, uh, Frankenheimer directed uh, some of Serling's best. Uh, Playhouse 90 episodes, and as you mentioned, uh, Seven Days in May, which I think is is clearly Rod Serling's best screenplay and best movie. Um, so yeah, they had they they were they were close friends, uh, John Frankenheimer and Rod Serling, and, and yes, he Rod initially met Errol Holloman on a show called The Dark Side of the Earth on Playhouse 90, um, which was very good, and 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 Errol Holloman is terrific in it, and uh, and Rod remembered him from from that, and and he ran into him before uh, Twilight Zone. Uh, Got was on the air, and he had written the pilot episode, and he saw Earl Holland, and he said, "Hey, you know, I, I just wrote this, you know, this pilot script, and you would be perfect for it, and you know, here it is, and that, and that was it, you know." Um, 
And Earl Holloman, yeah, I, I got the chance to talk to Earl Holloman uh, several times after I wrote the book, actually, strangely enough, not before I wrote the book, but after I wrote the book. And, and he is um, a gentleman's gentleman. I mean, he is such a, uh, such a sweetheart of a guy. Um, and he loved Rod Serling. He really did. I don't know that they had a real close, re- close friendship, but the admiration was clearly there. I mean, Earl Holloman really, really uh, admired Rod Sterling. And I'll give you a, a quick uh, story. You know, I sent him a bunch of uh, a bunch of photos to sign for the foundation that we were going to use for a raffle uh, for one of the Sterling fests. And and um, you know, so I sent him a bunch of photos, and he actually called me and he said, he said, Nick, you know, I'll, I'll sign all these photos. I have no problem whatsoever. I said, he said, except for this one photo, I, I can't sign this one picture. And I, you know, why can't you sign it? He said, he said, because I look angry in it, and I don't want to give people the wrong impression because I was never angry on that show. It was, a, it was a, it was a beautiful experience the whole time. I, I, in this picture, I look like I'm telling Rod, Rod, you got to change this line or something, you know. And I, I don't want to give people the wrong impression. I said, I said, Earl, I, I really appreciate, you know, your your sentiment, and absolutely, you can throw that one out if you want, if you want. Don't don't worry about signing. And uh, so that's the kind of guy he was. He was. He wanted it to be absolutely 100% positive. Um, the impression he gave of his of his relationship to the show, his relationship to Serling, and his memories of the show. And and uh, you know he um, he loved he he loved that particular episode. And, and what actor wouldn't? Because it's virtually a one man show. And uh, Earl Holliman says that you know when he got the script, you know he he had been. Previously, he had been in Forbidden Planet, Earl Holloman, and and uh, so when he heard this was going to be a science fiction thing, he said, "Oh, yeah, I'm probably going to get the script, and I'm going to be, you know, one of 20 guys on a spaceship, and you know, maybe I'll have a few lines or something." And he said he couldn't believe it when he's reading it; it's all him, page after page, and and he and he loved it, you know. And by the time he got you know done with it, he said, "Oh my God, he, he would he would have done anything to do that show, you know." So, um, you know, so it was a great opportunity for him, and, and Earl Holloman had a terrific career. Uh, he went on to Police Woman and and uh, you know plenty of guest starring roles, plenty of big big movies as well. So um, yeah, and he's just a, just a really great guy. And you find that, and I hope this comes through in the book, that you find that people who worked at Rod Serling love the guy. I mean, uh, you know, it's really really hard to find somebody who say a bad thing about Rod Serling who had worked with him. Uh, actors actors loved him. Um, again, Earl Holland, and one of the things he said that impressed him immensely was during that playoff 90 episode when they were when they were rehearsing it he went to rod serling and said hey rod you know i have this idea you know i think this character should say something along the lines of of this and he says you know to my amazement rod serling took out a pencil and started writing down what i was saying and he actually and he actually used what i what i suggested he said that was unheard of for a writer to do that most most writers would say you know you're an actor you go do your job i'm the writer i'll do my job and, and that's it and he said robson had no ego like that he said yeah this, that's a great idea and he took it down he said i never forgot that and that's the kind of guy Rod Sterling was. He he liked to work with people. You know, he he just he just he loved that creative atmosphere of bouncing ideas off somebody as long as they were receptive. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, so he had a great working relationship with with the actors, with John Frankenheimer, with with all sorts of people. Um, and he worked with certain people, you know, over and over again. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, what um, maybe about a year. Or so after Seven Days in May came out, uh, John Frankenheimer directed Birdman of Alcatraz, and that had Telly Savalas in it. So there's you know kind of like another uh, Twilight yeah. Zone uh, connection, and you know then we take that back to uh, you know Mike's Museum, and you know like they have a uh, 
a replica of Talky Tino. Once, tell us about that display and and the uh, reproductions of the uh, masks. Yeah, um, Mark. Let me pick up on something Nick just said about about Rahulman. It's interesting because okay. I actually did some video transfer work. He had some 16 millimeter prints back in the <laughs> early 80s from a one season show called Hotel de Paris, and a friend of mine did all of his film transfers to video. So that's how I got to know him years before. So in '87, when I was uh, putting together the Rod Serling Celebrity Fundraiser Auction. I contacted him, and he sent a strip signed by both him and uh, uh, what's her name from from the the first show you mentioned. Uh, my mind's gone. The the cop show. I'm sorry. Oh, for Angie Dickinson. Yeah. Angie Dickinson. So that was signed by yeah. both of them. Very nice. And he sent some signed photos. And then the year later, I called him about the uh, uh, the star ceremonies. And so I actually have a thirty or forty minute another tape of the conversation of Earl and I. Um, before the one that he did where he made the recording for me for the film festival. And on the film festival one uh, that I just played, the eight-minute the eight one, he mentioned, you know, that he ran into Rod in the back lot of MGM. He was doing another Playhouse 90 that wasn't Rod's, but he wasn't happy with it, and that Rod spotted him and they talked. But on my personal tape, to me, it was a little funnier. And he said, that here I was, I was not happy with the show I was doing, I come out of there, I wasn't in a good mood, and I kept hearing something that I thought was my name in the distance, you know, like, Earl, Earl, and I didn't pay any attention. I didn't turn around, and he said, I literally, as I got about five feet from my car, got tackled from behind and thrown onto the dash. He hit me so hard, it threw me onto the dash in my car, and I turned around ready to punch the guy out, and it was Rod. And he said, well, I tried to get your attention, and you wouldn't listen to me. He didn't answer me. So I thought that was pretty comical. And uh, and then, uh, you know, he, he went into the whole I bit. Can which picture Nick's I book can as picture well that. about um, He went in, and Nick's book tells about the same thing uh, about the filming, and he had a bad cold, and, and uh, he touches on that. And the, the first day of shooting, there was no – Either no film in the camera or the aperture didn't work, so they got no footage. So then when they had to redo it, the whole day's work, um, you can, he says you can hear the raspiness in his voice, the difference in the day's shootings, and you can when you watch the episode if you really listen for it. So, you know, even though it's only an eight-minute tape, they had a, a lot of punch to it. And you got to remember, for 1987, uh, the only Rod Serling thing out there was uh, Z- Mr. Zigfried's Twilight Zone Companion. So there wasn't, you know, there was no Google search. There was no Internet search uh, to find out all this information. So at that time, that was very important, what the contents of Earl Holliman's tape. It wasn't an interview. He just recorded it. I asked him to record it in a cassette, which he did from Calgary, Canada, while he was filming the Gunsmoke reunion movie. And uh, <laughs> so it made it you know, really ahead of its time. Now everybody's heard him tell Earl Holliman tell that story 50 times, and it remains 99% the same, but uh, but never had the information about being tackled and <laughs> literally thrown onto my car. And then and, and just, and just, just, oh, just yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Say what you were gonna. 
I was going to say, just to add to, add to that, the, uh, and, and just to give another little piece of uh, trivia that uh, you mentioned, Hotel de Paris, I guess it was called. That act, that show was actually on the same night as Where Is Everybody, the debut of The Twilight Zone, the same night. It might have been directly before. Yeah, it was directly before it, I think, not the same. But um, so Earl Holliman was on twice that night. He was, he was on his own, his oh, own series, and then he was on The Twilight Zone the same night. <laughs> wow, I, I forgot about that. You had mentioned a few minutes ago Buck Houghton, producer. And I got to tell you, a funny incident when we did the star ceremony for Rod in Hollywood. Uh, I won't go into the details of how my suggestion and then the foundation's hard work got the star out there, but here I am out there. Uh, MGM hired me, uh, didn't pay much, but they hired me to, to, uh, to pull the stars in to speak and to work with the uh, after party and, and uh, they hired me to produce and, and direct. And uh, so I worked with Carol for four, 12, 14 hour days at a studio right there on, right near the uh, Hotel Roosevelt. And uh, she, I, I bought the films from Rod's personal collection from Ithaca on the plane, and then we sat there and watched everything, and Carol and I edited all the footage and said what we wanted used, and that was only shown once at the after party. But uh, right before we were getting ready, about an hour before they were going to unveil the star, I was talking to some people, and I didn't know who I was talking to. And uh, he asked who I was, and I told him, and he didn't give me a name, an older gentleman. And... I says, boy, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And he looked at me and smiled, and he says, so have I. Son of a bee if it wasn't Buck Houghton. And <laughs> I, I, here I am, I'm feeling the star. I'm kneeling next to Johnny Grant and Carol, and there's Buck on the other side. And I, I, I cringed. I mean, I felt like an inch tall. <laughs> She's been waiting a lot longer than that. <laughs> I never shared that with anybody, so you got a first out of us. <laughs> And, and another guy who, who again, they worked closely together, and he loved Rod. He, they were great. They were great friends. They got along great, and um, and and nobody worked closer with Rod Sterling and Buck Houghton during those years. So um, it, it really is amazing the working relationship that he had with all of these people. Yeah, it, it is. Like I, I would agree that ninety nine point nine really loved him and stuff. And and Earl said you, you hit it on the head. They weren't real close friends, but he mentioned on the tape that I would run into Rod at parties a lot. And at restaurants, and they were always they always spoke. So, you know, he did see him throughout his life. But, uh, you know, as far as close friendship, no, there just wasn't time. And Rod has had his busy career going, and and uh, Earl had his busy career going. And uh, I mentioned to uh, uh, to Mark this afternoon. I actually sent a a large package to Earl Holloman two days ago, which you'll get tomorrow, Priority Mail. And uh, I wanted that photo of him and I from 32 years ago to get signed. And so oh, I sent him a lot of stuff uh, for him to keep. Uh, he was best friends with Anthony George, another actor from Endicott, which was here in Bainton. Uh, uh, Star of the Untouchables, uh, Checkmate, Dark Shadows, Soap Operas. And uh, he, he had mentioned on the tape that he was here before staying with the George family. And so I sent him a lot of photos about Anthony's star ceremony, which was the third star. Rod was first, and then Richard Deacon was second, and Anthony George third. And I told him a lot of stories about what we did together when he was here. And then I sent him about 20 photos of Rod Serling star ceremonies here at Binghamton, uh, which took about five years to get laid from the time I proposed it to the uh, card committee, the Committee on Architect and Urban Development, and it was voted on. And it took about five years to actually to get the bronze done in about a year. <laughs> but it sat in one of the board of directors' cars, Trump, for about three, four years. And uh, because there was no money for the city, to uh, do the first slab of concrete work at $3,500. So finally, uh, a friend of the Serling family 
came forth and donated the money uh, anonymously. And then at the actual star ceremonies, he came. And uh, when asked why he did it, he just said, you know, I have my reasons and I'm glad to be able to do it. And, you know, didn't go into detail much. He later on when we talked said that he used to go to the Serling house all the time and they'd just sit on the porch and talk, uh, the whole family. And his mom would bring out fudge and iced tea and, and stuff. So they had a friend relationship with the whole family, not just with Rod. So it's fun when people like that come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, if, it, if we left it to the city, it never would have gotten in concrete. And so we're so glad it did. But, you know, that was like three, four years after the Hollywood star. Uh, and yet I started this earlier than the Hollywood star process. So it's funny how time, and I remember the Hollywood star for Rod cost $3,500 and uh, the Soviet <laughs> state paid for it. Right now, I just read an article a few weeks ago, a Hollywood star right now costs $35,000. Oh, jeez. So that's well, quite well, a jump. Quite yep. a jump from $3,500 to $35,000. And uh, you know, going up, I don't know why such a drastic change, but uh, so that's just a couple of side side notes on uh, names that uh, you know we were talking about. Yeah. Oh, and um, Mike, speaking of uh, side notes, uh, Carlisle Rachel uh, is enjoying the show, and Johnny and Helen took a break from eating tacos to, <laughs> to say they're enjoying the show as well. But, but, uh, uh, Mike, uh, uh, I, uh, want to get into what you have on display at the, uh, uh, Bundy museum. And can, can you tell us a little bit about, about the what they see yeah. if, uh, uh, when, when people can it's safe to travel hopefully they put you on uh, yes a, a de- destination stop if we can salvage the summer yeah well here's where we're at as of yesterday with the museum uh, because of the pandemic we're taking the high road uh, we have a lot of people that are you know seniors with underlying health issues like I do, and uh, and uh, some of the grandparents in their 90s, so they're very leery. So the museum has taken the high road and said, we are not going to open this year at all, not until at least January. However, uh, as of today, stage four in New York State, we are allowed to have <coughs> 50% capacity in there, and our little theater only holds 63. So we could do a program. So what the museum's decided, anybody that wants to travel to Binghamton or is traveling through, if you want to see the exhibit, you have to email them a couple of days ahead, and they will answer you and accommodate you with the time, and they will do small groups of 10 or under, up to 10. Uh, you, you know, have to have your mask on. You'll have to social distance. Um, and, you know, they're willing to stand there and do, you know, four or five groups, one right after the other. But it'll be on a, you know, a set-up basis by itself for the rest of this year. Now, the exhibit for Rod Serling is always free. We've never charged. Uh, our end zone programs are always free. However, I'm going to urge the people, because the museum is hurting like everybody else, with, with, with no money coming in, in a budget of over 10000 a month to operate, uh, to take the tour for $7 of the whole property. It's well worth it. I can't take it because I can't do stairs and all these spiral staircases and two or three floors. 
But I, I talk to people, and they, they love it. Uh, and Nick knows we now have a couple more new buildings that are uh, just opening up. And uh, so, you know, you don't have to. You can see the exhibit free, but we urge you to take the tour. Uh, and I think you even have group rates of, you know, five or more, and uh, it's well worth seeing. Uh, so we're talking about buildings. They just bought the corner building, which is a brick building. It was actually my baby doctor. I had my tonsils out there when I was seven. And that's our new museum uh, visitor center. So instead of being right behind the annex theater where we have the exhibit, uh, that will be our new uh, visitor center. So there will be Rod Serling pictures and, and, and articles and things and maps there. And then uh, one of three houses they bought two years ago or three years ago, uh, right around the corner. So we now have seven properties, and it's called Bundy Museum Complex. <coughs> and they're just getting the walls up and finished off in there, and that's going to be a new arts uh, literary center. And uh, they have a, a nationally recognized poet. Matter of fact, he just spoke in, at a conference in Scotland and all over this country, and he's been published dozens of times. That's has rented most of that building, and he's agreed to have a section in there on Rod Serling, since it's a literary center in writing. Um, so there will be Rod Serling photos and memorabilia on some of the walls there. And then we're going to have a gift shop in there that will accommodate all of his people and their art and stuff. So anything we have that's not legitimate. Now, what I mean by that is like in the gift shop in the theater, uh, when you come in the door, we sell books like Nick's book, Martin Graham's Twilight Zone book, uh, any original books and things like that. But we have over 500 duplicate uh, Twilight Zone comic books. We have several hundred duplicate uh, Twilight Zone magazines. So that type of material, the secondary use market, will be on sale in the visitor center, uh, or excuse me, in the new art, art literary center. So now when you come to see Rod Serling, you'll want to see all three places, the visitor center uh, and the, the new literary center, because there will be a, a little bit of Rod Serling. That's one way we can expand from the limited area we have in the actual exhibit room. Okay. So, so, so sounds good. And what else can people do? And I give copies of, if they want to watch a, uh, when you uh, open the museum back up, there's a, uh, you know, TV where they can watch some of the episodes. Yeah, you're referring to our 1952 refurbished television. Of course, we yep. we gutted that and put in a digital uh, modernistic, and we have a DVD hooked up to it. So out of the hundreds of DVDs we have of uh, Rod Serling-related material, we have quite a bit of vintage stuff from the 50s and 60s that, uh, although you can see it at the Paley Center and pay to watch it go, uh, and uh, UCLA has some of it, we have a few things that none of the others have. So what I did is I pulled 10 great pieces. Most of them are 30-minute shows, uh, live kinescopes and things. And there's a list there on the wall, and you can ask one of the staffers to just put the DVD in. You can pull up some chairs, you know, up to 10 people in a semicircle I've had there, and watch vintage 50s uh, Rod Serling material on a 50s early television. So that's one part of the aspe uh, aspect of the exhibit. As far as the exhibit itself goes, we have just around 3,000 pieces in there. Now, it sounds like a lot, but you have to consider, like, we've got every Twilight Zone episode. So there's like 150 or six. And then you've got every Night Gallery episode. So that takes up big chunks. 
but we have probably 100 newspaper clippings, mostly from Binghamton, uh, that people have never seen, that people have donated. They found in junk shops and, and in old newspapers and, and have donated to the museum. And a lot of them are very fun, uh, and some are very educational, very interesting. And then, uh, you know, we have the strips, uh, all 10 of the books uh, by Tony Alvareva and Carol Serling on Rod Serling's strips. So there's a little bit of everything. We have a lot of documents. Uh, Martin Grahams had donated several hundred documents that he was using for his book uh, for research. So they're in binders, and people can sit and go through and read strips or read some of the documentations. Uh, uh, for example, there's a short letter in there from uh, Burgess Mayer just to Rod, thanking Rod for picking him to do Time Enough at Last, that it's his favorite thing he's done at that point, and then a reply from Rod back to him. So there's that type of letters and things that are in there, and uh, there, are, there are a lot of fun. Uh, some of them are in Martin's Twilight Zone book, but not all of them. So <clears throat> we try and rotate the exhibit. Is I was trying to rotate it two or three times a year, at least 30% of the material. But what we had planned on for April that we had to cancel with the virus was a complete take everything off the walls, move the cabinets, and put everything up new. And, of course, it never happened because we had to close in March like everything else. So I'm hoping by the time that we actually get to do another in the zone program there that everything will be new on the walls. We bought 20 or 30 new uh, original press photos, wire photos, TBS, Twilight Zone, and, and uh, NBC Night Gallery, and, and, and the loaners, and uh, just so much new material that way. Uh, some things that have been donated recently, and uh, hopefully we can get some of the props back out. So, you know, hopefully by the time we open up again, uh, officially, there will be quite a bit of new material there. And, Nick, when you've been you're working <laughs> on, or when you were uh, working on your book, uh, were, were, you, were you at the Bundy Museum doing some, some research, and you you were going to other um, collections of archives across the country as yeah, well. And I, yeah, you were right. everywhere uh, finding uh, yeah, th those you know, details that really put uh, coalesced Rod's life uh, for, for your book. Yeah, well, I went to, uh, you know, everywhere that I needed to go. I, there are there are three primary archives, really, for, for Serling's scripts and um, scripts and correspondence and, and things like that. And the main one is in Wisconsin. It's at the uh, Madison uh, Historical Society in Wisconsin. Um, they have a, an archive of 81 boxes of material of scripts and letters and contracts and all sorts of things. And uh, so I went there and I went through as much of it as I possibly could. Um, after that, there is an archive at UCLA. Uh, you know, when Rod was living in Pacific Palisades, it was not far from UCLA and he donated a lot of material to, uh, to that uh, institution. So I, I went there. Third one is at Ithaca College. When, when Rod taught at Ithaca College um, for many years at the end of his life, um, he ended up donating a lot of material to Ithaca College. So, so I went to those three locations. I mean, I went to Ithaca several times and um, Wisconsin and UCLA once. 
And just to get information on on every show that Rod Serling wrote that was produced or really that wasn't produced, I cover a lot of the stuff that wasn't produced in the book as well. Um, so, so those were the, the main ones that I went to. And I also went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and went through his um, – his college uh, file, you know, his transcripts uh, and things like that. And that, and I got some really great information from there that I had never seen published anywhere. Um, so, so that was really, uh, really uh, educational there. Uh, so that was, so there were basically four locations. And then, yes, I, I, I visited the Bundy Museum several times and talked to Mike and we shared, uh, shared film, you know, shared uh, videos that, you know, that he, he, you know, he didn't have, or I didn't have. Um, so that was helpful because one, one of the things that I did uh, in writing the book was I watched everything. So I watched every, every show that Rod Serling wrote that exists. I've seen. Uh, essentially, there may be one or two, and that's kind of a long story. But that I haven't seen, but that's that's a long story. But but basically, anything that exists, so it either exists at the Paley Center in New York City, uh, and I went there probably seven, eight, nine times to watch everything that's there. Uh, UCLA, the Film Archive at UCLA. Um, the Library of Congress had a couple of shows that don't exist anywhere else. I went there, uh, watched watched those. Um, and then all the stuff that people like Mike and I kind of just collect from the, you know, from the under the table market, you know, so to speak, you know, that's just out there uh, amongst film collectors and things. So, you know, so I gathered all of that stuff. So, so I watched, um, you know, I did the count at one point and I, I forget what it is now, but, um, but it, it, it was hundreds, I mean, hundreds of shows because he wrote, he wrote, you know, over 250 scripts that was, that were, that were produced on television or radio uh, or film. So, so I watched, you know, everything that exists. So, um, and that was the fun part of, of writing the book and researching. It was, you know, was watching all of this stuff because one of the things, I mean, you mentioned earlier, uh, Mark, that, you know, Playhouse 90 and some of the pre-Twilight Zone stuff. Well, that was, that was one of my main motivating factors in writing the book was that I wanted to expose people to this stuff that Rod Sterling wrote outside of the Twilight Zone. I, you know, we didn't need another Twilight Zone book. Like there's, there's plenty of them. You know, the, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg's Twilight Zone companion is still the, the gold, gold standard, I think, um, for the Twilight Zone. But then you have Martin Graham's book which is a, a doorstopper book because it has all the mm-hmm. information you could possibly want in it uh in in that book and then there's you know so many others so uh, i had no interest in writing a twilight zone book but um of course i cover the twilight zone because it's such an important part of our service career um but i wanted to expose people to some of the stuff that he wrote before the twilight zone and particularly after the twilight zone because i think that period is even more um un- unheard of uh, than the earlier period. Um, you know, people kind of think that, you know, it's very easy to get an impression of Rod Stone's career if you read some of the other books that, you know, he did The Twilight Zone and then just kind of fell off the face of the earth. And, and that's really, really not true. Uh, he wrote plenty of really, really good stuff after Twilight Zone, including lots of night galleries. Um, not my favorite series in the world, but he wrote a lot of, a lot of great stuff for it. Um, so he wrote plenty of really, really great stuff after The Twilight Zone that doesn't get, uh, doesn't get a fair shake sometimes. Right, and uh, oh, uh, Shelly wanted me to tell both of you hi. Uh, <laughs> Hello, Shelly. Hi, Shelly. <laughs> but, uh, you, you, you know, I get, had a good idea, you know, just, you know, cover the Twilight Zone, but, you know, there was a lot more to his career than just the one series and it, it you know sits in there uh you know reading your book and it, you get uh 
the short-lived series, The New People. I never heard of that one. Yeah, I mean, he wrote the pilot episode of that series, and that was it. He, he, he kind of, he wrote the pilot episode, and he also wrote kind of the Bible for the series. So he kind of, you know, for, if you read a lot of the, um, a lot of the news clippings from that time, a lot of them refer to it as Rod Serling's The New People, as if he created it. But he really didn't create it. It was Aaron Spelling's show, Aaron Spelling created it. But Rod Serling virtually created it because he did give the show its, its Bible in terms of what the, who the characters were and what their motivations were. And he, he not only did the pilot episode, but he submitted a whole bunch of other ideas for other episodes that could be used. Um, so, but... Um, he had a that was one of the shows that he had kind of a falling out with. Not with the not with the people. What happened was to give you the, the short version is that um, it was supposed to be an hour long show. It was it was you know the, generally speaking TV shows are a half hour or an hour, and this was going to be an hour show. And bef- and they filmed it as an hour. Rod Serling's name is on this on the on the screen. It's written by Rod Serling. It's an hour long, and I, I watched that version at the Paley Center. And and what happened was before it aired, the network which was ABC um, had this brilliant idea, and it may, may not have been a terrible idea, who knows, but they had this idea that they wanted to try this kind of unusual bit of time of scheduling. What they wanted to do is they wanted to take an hour and a half time slot and split it between two shows, and that meant that they both have to be 45 minutes long instead of an hour, so they had to cut about 15 minutes or maybe 12 minutes or so with commercials or whatever, but uh, out of out of that script, out of the show. And once they decided to do that, Rod Stern said, take my name off of it. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. And it was the only time in his career that he actually took his name off of the script um, you know, in protest. And so if you see the version, there's two versions. The, the, the full-length version is not available anywhere. Uh, it's at the Paley Center. They do have a copy of it. But the shorter version you can kind of find online, again, through some of those, like, you know, uh, secondhand sites of, of film collectors, it says it's written by John Phillips. It was a pseudonym that Rod Serling used um, for that purpose because he, he felt that it was, it was butchered. And, and, in fact, one of the fun things when I was researching the book was when you look at the scripts at, at, at the Wisconsin Historical Society, they're Rod Serling scripts. They're the ones that he donated. So what he did was he wrote notes to himself or notes to whoever might be reading them uh, in future years. He wrote them generally you know, on the cover. And, and on the cover of that script, he wrote, uh, he wrote, this brought a lot of money, but, but ABC cut 15 minutes out of it, and it bled to death. <laughs> so, um, and so that's how, that, how, how he felt about it. Go ahead. I was just saying, I, I wasn't aware of that. And, you know, like Nick you know, just found all this fascinating information that kind of links you know what rod was doing from the end of the twilight zone to you know, the night gallery you know most people probably don't you know realize that seven days in may and the loner and planet of the apes are in there too yeah amazing but, that's, that's pretty amazing uh, little body work right there <laughs> right Okay, uh, uh, Mike, go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry, sorry I didn't mean to... Go ahead. On the uh, the New People pilot in the mid-'80s, I was doing, you know, I did 40 years of conventions, film conventions around the country, and I ran into a, a priest from way up in, I think, Wyoming on the... Uh, and it was, it's out there, Washington, up near the Canadian border, that had a, uh, 
it was a group of boys' home, and he was a film collector. Uh, all the old MGM musicals and stuff. They had no television. They had no uh, anything up there then. So he bought all these rare films, and he's the one that actually had the 30, 35 millimeter print, not 16, but the national network print of the New People pilot. So he's the one that sent it to me, and I had it transferred to New York City. And, uh, you know, so Nick mentioned the 45-minute time slot. Well, you got to take it one step further, 45 minutes minus commercials. It runs 38 right. minutes. Right. And so that's the version that's that all of us have on tape. So I have not even seen the, the complete version uh, at the Paley Center because I can't get in the city and get pushed around and everything. So, you know, I would love to see it, but that's how – you know, I was the one that got that. We did trades. I did trades with when I was with the foundation and myself with the Paley Center way back in the late 80s. Um, two or three trades from stuff that I had gathered for the foundation and then <laughs> one trade of some of my own personal material for some other stuff that was not thrilling related. So it's funny how collectors have turned up just like the rare loaner promo. Uh, CBS does not have a copy. That's why it's not on the box set. Uh, but a friend of mine does, and, and uh, you know, we have changed it about four years ago now and have shown it several times at the museum. And, uh, you know, it's a very rare piece. Someday it will probably end up on eBay. Uh, you know, I recently gave Nick a copy. But, uh, you know, it's a nine-minute little gem because I actually like the footage that's in that better than what aired in the actual episode because the cast is all different other than Lloyd Bridges. They're all different character actors. And the sets are different. Uh, some things that were indoors and are outdoors. The dialogue is different. Uh, it, it just blows me away for that nine minutes. And then to have Rod come out at the beginning and talk, something like I'm not the reject from the Twilight Zone or something like that. And then uh, actually hearing Rod's voice doing the famous narration of the uh, uh, the overlying narration over the theme song is amazing. So, you know, thank God for collectors. Uh, a lot of rare materials <laughs> have come out of there. As a matter of fact, uh, I found uh, in a 50-gallon barrel of films that I bought bulk, you don't know what you're getting, I found the 10- uh, or 12-minute night gallery promo that I've never seen surfaced anywhere else yet. Uh, and I'm, I'm the one that found the, uh, the Sanka Coffee promo where he just appears at the end for Twilight Zone. A friend of mine had it, and he actually struck a negative and charged us cost, lab cost, and we made two 60-millimeter prints for us, uh, which the foundation has. So <coughs> a lot of material and uh, the famous insight episode uh the hate syndrome uh powerful piece now is surfacing color but um when i read about that in the paley center uh retrospective they did around 85 or so uh, i'm not sure of the year that mentioned that so i actually called the uh, catholic organization that had that tv show series insight and they said we can strike you a negative we'll use our negative and strike you a brand new print, but you have to pay the lab cost. So the foundation did do it, and it was $275. And that's how we were the first ones to ever get the uh, actual program of the Insight, which now is surfaced in color, uh, thanks to the UCLA archives out there. And uh, we're thankful that that's up on YouTube now in color. So collectors salvage a lot of not just silent movies that were considered lost, but a lot of vintage television. That That's how I found Christmas for Sweeney. A matter of fact, I bought it at a film show, and Carol Serling says, Rod didn't write that. I said, yes, he did. And I said, it has his name right on it, written by Rod Serling. She says, I don't remember that at all. So I sent her the video of it. And she says, oh, I hate it. She says, it's so smaltzy. She says, don't you ever show that. And I said, Carol, 
I'm showing it next month at the film festival. And Helen Poley, the teacher, said, you can't show it. I said, I'm showing it at the film festival. I said, this is early Rod Serling, 1950, uh, the first or second thing he ever wrote. There's some discrepancy of which is which. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and I love it. I've probably seen it 50 times. Yes, it's, it's you know, I love anything Christmas, but it, it is schmaltzy. Uh, is my word for it, but I still love it. It's vintage Rod Serling, and uh, you know how can you not enjoy enjoy it? Uh, so you know, and then she she didn't remember Man in the Funny Suit where Rod played himself, and uh, so she, she asked me for a copy. So anything Carol and I had a good working relationship for several years, and I sent her a lot of rare material, and uh, and she did me too. Uh, a funny story about rare material. I just p- talked about. In my last program a few nights ago on Facebook Live, uh, that there were two episodes that were not in the original syndication package, uh, you know, for like 30 years. And one of them was Sounds and Silences, one of Nick's least watchable episodes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not one of my favorites, but I enjoyed because I knew Penny Singleton and John McGyver was one of my favorite character actors. So, yeah, is it good? Not really. But I still enjoy watching it at least once a year just to, to see. I have tape recordings of uh, Penny Singleton and I, too, that I treasure. So I got – somebody had posted, I think it was Roger Scarlett, because I couldn't remember the other episode that was it was not in syndication. And he came back with, I think you're talking about well, the well, account. Actually, but that's you know, not actually, Mike, I, I think – Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I think I think actually, believe it or not, I think there were actually about six episodes that were not included in syndication because there were, if you remember, there was the uh, Twilight Zone Silver Anniversary Special in 1984. The big hook in that one was three lost Twilight Zone episodes, and so there were three in that one, and that was miniature, one of the hour-long ones that was not included in syndication, so that had not been seen in you know 50 years. So miniature was one. Sounds and Silences was another, and um, Short Drink from a Certain Fountain was another one that uh, that, that's at least th- that's at least three and then you had a current at Owl Creek Bridge was not actually included in syndication because as we know the story with that it was not really a Twilight Zone episode it was they bought it <laughs> right. to use it as a Twilight Zone episode so they didn't include that one so that's four um, and then they were uh, a couple of the parallel another hour long one that one was not included uh, that's five, and I believe there was one more. But so, but you know, you bring up an issue. Now we're going to get into real like minutia now. But 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 so this is something I I just came to my attention again recently. So I, I might as well mention it. But it's funny if you if you look at uh, news articles from the time of around say 1968, 79, 70, when when the Twilight Zone was just really hitting its stride in syndication. When, you know. Um, it, almost every article says that there were 139 Twilight Zone episodes. I mean, you'll find I find this over and over again. 139 Twilight Zone episodes, and there's actually wow. 156. And I have tried to figure out where in the world would they get this 139 uh, number from. And I was so I tried to do the math, and I was thinking, well, maybe they didn't include the hour-long episodes because there were 18 of them. But if that was the case, then it would be 138 episodes, not 139, and it would be. That it'd be easier to figure out if there were one too many because then you could say there was one more that, that they took into they left out included uh, plus the hour long episodes but it's not it's one one too few so so every which way I've done it if you take those six episodes that weren't in syndication right now it's 150 and then the 16 hour long ones because they, I we already said two of them were in the syndication so six so now it, the math just doesn't work any which way but every article says 139 episodes so they're all wrong <laughs> so, so I one day I'm going to figure out where that number came from but I, I still haven't quite figured yeah, that's it out funny. I, I never heard that now what's interesting yeah. I'm glad you 
stop me and correct me there because uh, what I base mine on, the two, is, and I, I corrected Roger when he said the encounter. The, I have two letters from Carol I just read again the other day, and she told in there that when the encounter aired, uh, the networks took the films and put a label over it said banned from television, could never be shown again. And uh, yeah, so Carol, Carol had Rod's print, remember? He donated all the films to Ithaca. So she had the network 16 millimeter with all the commercials. So he transferred that according to the letter. She had it transferred and sent it to me to show to George Takei at one of the, I think it was at the Syracuse Star Trek convention when I was doing 90-minute programs on Rob Serling for about six years. And we'd have 1,000 people uh, at these programs. And she says, you can't tell them where you got this from. CBS doesn't even know we have it. And so I wasn't even able to tell them where it came from. So that was banned. So that's not one that wasn't syndicated. It was just literally banned not to be shown again. Thank God they ended up putting it on the, well, the DVD right, but, it, but, it, but it actually wasn't syndicated because for that reason. Though. That, that's, that's why it hadn't been seen in so long. Right. Yeah, because so, they, they actually pulled it, yeah. <laughs> but what I based – the trouble I had coming up with was the uh, short drink. And I, I said at the end, I think that was what it was. Well, we I answered Roger because we have a, an original press photo from CBS – it had to be early 90s because I was still in Endicott at the time, um, before 93 when I moved to Johnson City back to the old house. And it shows a split screen with both episodes, photos, sounds and silences, and a uh, short drink. And it says that these were never in syndication until now, and Carol Serling sponsored this as a, uh, a one-hour TV show special in the early 90s. So that's why I based it on two. I'm not aware of the earlier special that you're mentioning from the 80s. So that's great to know because I send me a you know, printout, or did you mention that in your book? Uh, I do mention it, yeah, I do mention it in the book. But, you know, it is funny that that is a, that is a show, actually, the Twilight Zone uh, Silver Anniversary Special that ha- hasn't actually shown up, and, and I haven't found it. Um, and that's the version where they have the, the miniature is parts of it are colorized. And and not only that, but um, but I believe Carol Sterling hosted – no, uh no, she hosted the one with the from the movie when the movie came out. But this was hosted by um, an actor who was on the Twilight Zone. His name is, escapes me. But so so it had kind of a an introduction to it also. And the and the, the video of that show uh, has not shown up anywhere as far as I uh, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I didn't know it existed until you just mentioned it because I said hmm. you know when when you were working on your book, you sent me a lot of it in advance, and it was bigger print, and I could read it. When your book came out, I had both cataracts. Remember, I had zero vision in one eye uh. and ten. The other, so I I could barely skim it. So it's in the the Bundy. I donated that on your and my behalf to the museum. So I I can't literally sit there and read every page like I'd like to. But uh, so I yeah, wasn't aware of that eighty special. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, Mike, it, it, you know, you mentioned uh, the man in the funny suit, uh, and you showed that. Uh, Thursday night at the um, uh, or get together last year. Yeah, you know, that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably about the only Playhouse ninety episode I've ever seen. But yeah, you know, I really like that, and you know, Rod is uh, playing himself. Edwin. Edwin. Everybody put themselves in it. 
uh, it wasn't Playhouse. It was the uh, Westinghouse Digital Playhouse. And uh, okay. inter- interesting about that, I, like I said, I it found that in the late 70s on 16 millimeter, a collector in California, and I had to pay him $50 to tr- uh, transfer it for me. So that's how we, we got a hold of that before anybody ever had that film. And uh, so I sent that to Carol. And t- to me, I watch it at least 50 times. I watch it at least once or twice a year. And, you know, I cry every time. I laugh every time. It's just a powerful piece. And, and uh, Nick had just mentioned how he used uh, the other name, taking it off of the, the screen. He threatened to have his name pulled from, you know, Requiem for a Heavyweight, his second Emmy, because uh, of Ed Wynn and uh, the goofing up of the lines and going into funny jokes and characters and funny hats. And, and uh, he gives a famous little speech for about a minute and a half in there about, you don't know what it takes to write a requiem and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the, you know, the, all of this. And it's just so powerful. And, uh, and yet, you know, because of the situation, you know, the only time in history that I, I, I know of where they hired an understudy for a lead character to go in on a minute's notice and, and stuff. That's the only way Rod agreed to stay on. So I love it because, you know, he plays himself and, and, uh, you know, so many others are in it, uh, you know, to play themselves. Uh, Red Skelton's in it and had a very critical part in Requiem coming off because when Edwin comes in drunk the day to do the show, uh, he had never drank in his life, never been drunk. And they were going up the steps to fire him and he, he stops him and he says, you, you can't fire this man. You know, he's been in showbiz 50, 60 years. You have to, you know, respect this and honor it and we'll sober him up and he'll do fine. And so they talked him out of firing him and, and you know, look at the critical acclaim he received for his performance. It was just, just brilliant. But uh, Rod literally yeah. threatened to take his name off, in his own words, you know, playing himself. And Ed would go, go on to be in um, uh, uh, Pitch for the Angels, uh, the Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, one, one, one for the Angels, right. Yeah. Okay. okay but it, and th- th- then you know, in that mid '60s time frame, Keenan uh, uh, w- would be in um, a Doctor Strangelove, saying you're going to have to answer the Coca-Cola company. Is that his? Is that his line? I that, that, that I wouldn't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just it, it, it's really I I find it uh, amazing that it, you know a, a, after talking with you two over the years, you it, 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 it just see this uh, real renaissance of um, American. Uh, concept, you know, really developing into ha- having uh, people getting their starts uh, on some of the Twilight Zone episodes, all these yeah, just connections that went on over the years, you know, uh, you know, like Keenan being in uh, Doctor Strangelove, you know, just moving on to uh, different projects. But you know, there's all all these uh, uh, people really got their starts at the same 
same uh, place, you know, just few places around the same time. It, it, it's <clears throat> uh, really fascinating to process what was going on in that, you know, the second half of the 1950s uh, time period. It, and, you know, Nick, you uh, cover yeah. that, that, that really well in your skin. It has all the documentation and sample videos there. It's you know, really been a learning experience for me. Thanks. I'm glad to hear that. You know, it's uh, you know they called it the golden age of television for a reason. You know, it was um, it was it was an exciting time for television. Um, and as you know, Rod Serling would be the first to tell you that uh, you know sometimes it could be that. That could be it could be overrated, you know. Uh, you know, you get the idea that everything was great back then, and it wasn't. There was a lot of there was a lot of bad stuff as well. Uh, but there was uh, there was an excitement in the in the live television atmosphere uh, that that you just can't get on in film when you're, you're rehearsing and you don't have that that pressure of having to get it right immediately, you know. And um, and that piece that Mike's talking about, you know, uh, you know, the man the funny suit. Um, uh-huh. That was one of the things that they were dealing with. Is that you know this was a this was Requiem for Heavyweight was going to be a live presentation on Playhouse 90, and and you had an actor Edwin who was known as a comedian. He was a comedian his whole life, and in his in the rehearsals he was he was terrible. He was he was continuously lapsing into shtick. He was doing he was you know doing it when he could remember his lines, and half the time he couldn't remember his lines. But when he could remember them, he was delivering them as if he was a comedian. And 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 Rod did say if this goes on if we're going to use this guy i'm, I'm taking my name off of this and because it was the, the pressure was it's going to be live we have one chance to get this right and um and and the, the guy who was the champion for edwin really besides red skelton was was uh was martin manulis the producer of playhouse 90 he, yeah. he stood behind uh he stood behind edwin and he said listen this guy's a professional he's been in this business for 50 years i'm not going to give up on him he'll, he'll get his act together he'll get it right but he did can see that you know let's get a let's get an understudy in let's get somebody who knows the part you know so in case anything terrible happens on you know live tv we can pull them out and throw another you know throw another actor in there and then, and mike's right i think they said it was the only time ever that they hired a, an understudy for uh certainly for that series and so so the man in the funny suit is about that story about how hard it was for edwin to 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 get ready to play that part and he came through brilliantly he he gives this this heart-wrenching Brilliant performance, and he got you know tremendous critical acclaim, and and uh, he's better than better than his son Keenan Wynn in it. Uh, you know, Keenan Wynn was in a lot of different Sterling uh, things. He was in a Twilight Zone episode called uh, World of His Own, which was actually written by Richard Matheson. Um, he was also in a, a, a great Sterling piece called The Rack from uh, for U.S. Steel Hour. Uh, so he was in a lot of things. Keenan Wynn is not one of my favorite actors, um, uh, but he was in a lot of different Sterling things, and um, and Ed Wynn went on from. From Playhouse 90 to do, as you said, one for the Angels, Twilight Zone episode. Then he did a fifth season Twilight Zone episode uh, called 99 Years Without Slumbering, which is not a Sterling episode. Um, that was a George Clayton Johnson episode. Um, and, you know, when uh, when Edwin died, uh, when Edwin died, his his... His, one of his eulogies was delivered by Jack Palance, who was his co-star in Requiem for Heavyweight, and it was written by Rod Serling. I mean, so so Rod Serling after Requiem, um, when he saw how brilliant Edwin was, he was Rod Serling was eff- effusive with his apology to Edwin that I should never have doubted you. 
you were brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm eating my, you know, I'm, I'm eating crow right now. You're, you know, you were terrific and I'm, I'm in your debt. I'm, you know, I'm forever in your debt. And so he, you know, Ed Wynn started really in some ways the first Twilight episode because there was the pilot, which is where is everybody. But then the first episode after that was one for the angels which, with Ed Wynn. So, um, so he wanted to repay Ed Wynn for, for, for that, um, you know, for how he felt that he treated them. I'm sure Rod Serling didn't treat him badly, but but how he because he just didn't believe in him at that point. But he he learned uh, learned his lesson, I guess. Yeah, I, okay. I'm so glad it worked out. For those that don't know who the understudy was, it was Ned Glass. And for those that are into the old uh, musicals, West Side Story, he was a shopkeeper that you know was close friends with the two characters. Uh, but he had he had a great career himself, and he was he was a, you know short thin. Uh, gentleman uh, delivered the lines well in rehearsals, but I, it would not have been the same. I mean, you just sit there no. and watch this, and I'm blown away every time I watch it with Edwin's performance. And and uh, and I agree with Nick. I don't care for Keenan Wynn either. I'm sure he was a nice guy, but I find him stiff and and not that good of an actor, not that fun to watch. But uh, <laughs> it was the first time the father son. That was the whole premise of you know it's just an afterthought when they were trying to reach. Uh, uh, Keenan Wynn, the Edwin answered the phone because Keenan was out of the country. And that's when they hit him with the idea, hey, this would be great to have you know, uh, your first appearance on with your father, uh, with your son, I mean, and uh, your first dramatic role on, on, on television. So it was a, a brilliant idea that just hit him, and, uh, and they went with it, and it, it couldn't be more powerful. And I'm so glad you mentioned Jack Palance because uh, he was a friend of Mike Kenny's uh, father, and he, he lived not far from Kenny's house in Scranton. And he would come over the house quite often and buy films for his collection. And he, he always corrected everybody. It was Palance is what he would say. Oh, really? His name okay. Was, was mispronounced. But, you know, you, you get a glimpse of him, uh, <laughs> and you read about uh, Jack rehearsing after hours with Edwin because he believed in him too, not just Manlius and, and uh, yeah, Red Stone. Yeah. He really believed in Ed and and uh, you know, busted his chops to to do it. And then, ironically, Jack isn't even in the episode "Man in the Funny Suit." Every other every other character is. Not that he was needed in it to tell the story, but it would have been nice if he had a small part in it for for saving, you know, helping to save the, the film. Okay. Hey, uh, um, Mike and Nick, we have uh, four minutes uh, left, and I, I want to give. <laughs> Uh, both of you uh, plenty of time to uh, you know, plug where to get Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination, you know, uh, Mike, your Facebook uh, live streams, and, and anything else you, you you want to discuss in the last uh, four minutes. Uh, Nick, you want to go first? Sure. Oh, thanks. Um Okay, yeah. The uh, well, the book is called Rod Throwing His Life, Work, and Imagination. It's available everywhere. Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com. Um, if you happen to be going out these days, you can certainly go out to Barnes and Noble or probably any other any other bookstore and 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 pick it up. It's um it's been out for over a year now and it's it's still doing great and. Um, uh, so that's available. And if you um, are interested in supporting the Rod Serling Memorial <laughs> Foundation, just go to go to RodSerling.com, and uh, you know, listen, send us uh, send us five bucks, you know, ten bucks, whatever whatever it may be. It will help us do some of the things that we're trying to do uh, to help preserve Rod Serling's legacy, uh, particularly in the Binghamton area, but really everywhere. 
Um, and uh, if you uh, have a chance, um, go on to that ipetitions.com site. That's where you'll find the Rod Serling Recreation Park petition. Uh, again, it's ipetitions.com, and then just search Rod Serling, and I'm sure it will come up. Um, or you can find it in a million places on Facebook, on the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation page on Facebook. Uh, and my page on Facebook, I have a page that's solely for the book. Um, so it's, it's for the book and to, promo- and to promote Rod Serling, and, and that's called Dimensions of Imagination. So if you go on Facebook and search Dimensions of Imagination, I'm sure you'll find me. Um, and I'll be doing uh, a short presentation at 10 a.m. on Sunday uh, from the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation Facebook page. I'll be going to go live and just say a few words and, and uh, give a little bit of a, a tribute uh, to Rod Serling on, on, just to commemorate the, uh, the anniversary on, on June 28th. Okay. okay. And, and the same basically goes for, for the Rod Serling Archive at the Bundy Museum. You can go to the Bundy Museum website, uh, bundymuseum.org, or Rod Serling Archive. We have a Facebook page, and we too have a link uh, for PayPal. And uh, what we do is a little bit different uh, because we have the exhibit. So any money that's donated to us goes to the Rod Serling Archive, where I have the pleasure of spending that money to buy new material for the exhibit. So it's your exhibit. It's not mine. It's for you, the public. It's free. And uh, so that's how we utilize the funds. And, and the, the same as Nick and the foundation. It's all, it's all good. It's, uh, it's all for the preservation of Roger Lane's legacy. And uh, let's get this job done on the uh, recreation park. Uh, I thank you, Barbara and Nick, for having us both on. Uh, when you first called me about it, I says. If Nick's going to do it, I'm in. If he's not, I'm not. I wasn't in the mood. And, and so I'm so glad. Because you can see we have a good relationship back and forth. And that uh, we enjoy yep. working off of each other. And we did a lot of trading to the mutual benefit of both organizations of material. So thank you very much for having us. I've enjoyed it. The fastest two hours I've ever done on one of these. <laughs> always, always great to talk with you, Mike. It's, it was fun.